Getting Better Healthcare is brought to you in part by Leo Pharma. Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our healthcare system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Healthcare, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our healthcare system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com website, where you can rate your doctor and look up doctor ratings. In 1999, the Institute of Medicine came out with a report called To Air is Human. The report said that there were over 100,000 deaths in American hospitals each year that could have been prevented. That hospitals were very dangerous places. Well, people have been working to make things better. But have they been effective? A recent New England Journal of Medicine report said that no, that efforts so far have been ineffective at reducing the preventable harms and deaths going on in American hospitals. We're joined today by the author of that study, Dr. Chris Landrigan. Dr. Landrigan is Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's Associate Physician in the Division of Sleep Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and he's Director of the Sleep and Patient Safety Program. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thanks very much. Good to be here. There is so much going on. We hear so much about patient safety. What are what are the problems with our with, with patient safety now in our hospitals? Well, for about 12 years in this country, there has been a growing national awareness of the epidemic of patient safety, and data as, as long ago as that time suggested that maybe as many as 98,000 patients are killed each year in the U.S. due to medical errors. Um, if we believe these numbers, it makes it something like the six to nine leading causes of death of in the country behind uh, heart attacks and behind certain kinds of cancers, but actually ahead of breast cancer, uh, highway accidents, suicides, homicides, AIDS, and uh, virtually everything in my specialty pediatrics combined. And unfortunately, it would appear from some of the data that's been coming out over the past 10 years, including a study that, that we led in North Carolina, that these rates of harms have not yet begun to move that much. That's not to say that uh, things aren't improving in some domains or that we don't have tools at our disposal to make things better. But as yet, those have yet to bear fruit. Now, when I heard that 100,000 people are being killed in hospitals needlessly every year, I thought that's ridiculous. Now, when you said it, it sounded like you said it with a sense of if we believe this number to be true. Right. Uh, are you convinced so that number is the, true? Well, I, I am convinced that it's, that it's true, that, that there are many, many deaths in the country each year due to medical errors. Um, I don't think we have a perfect sense of exactly what the true number is. And the reason for that is that those original projections of up to 98,000 deaths came from a couple of uh, statewide studies, one in New York State and another one in Utah and Colorado. And um, more recently, we have some data from a, a sampling of Medicare patients that largely substantiates those numbers that, that came out from the Office of the Inspector General of the U.S. 
But we don't have a system in place in this country yet where we monitor rates of, of adverse events due to medical errors or adverse events due to, due to harm of any kind in hospitals on a regular basis. And so we don't have, we simply don't know state by state or over time um, exactly what the true number is. You published a, a marvelous study. Uh, I say marvelous. I mean, a, a marvelous and depressing study yeah, yeah, in the yeah. New England Journal of Medicine. Um, tell our listeners a little about it. Sure. So what we did is, is trying to get a sense at least of whether things were uh, moving for better or worse at a statewide level. We conducted a study in North Carolina that spanned the years uh, 2002 to the very end of 2007, so about a six-year span, um, where we used uh, a tool that has been developed to do a standard review of charts and try to figure out whether patients were harmed as a consequence of medical care. And we applied that tool in a random sample of patients from a random sample of hospitals all over North Carolina. And by doing that, we were able to get a pretty good picture of what was happening, not at a hospital level, but at a statewide level. Um, unfortunately, what we found is that over this six-year span, uh, just as some of the prior data had been suggesting, we, we couldn't find any real convincing evidence that things were improving. What were some of the harms that you identified? Well, it really spans the gamut of things that can go wrong in the hospital, from procedural errors, surgical errors, to um, things related to medications, to uh, diagnostic delays and errors, to patient fall, to uh, ulcers, you know, bed sores, things like, things like that. It's, it's really a wide range of different types of things. And this is pretty consistent with prior studies that have looked at this problem and have found that there's really a huge range of different types of, of problems that take place in the hospital, none of which are uh, responsible for the great majority of them, but, but altogether, um, each of these categories of things contributes a pretty substantial but minority portion to the whole problem. If I read your paper right, one in four people going into the hospital was harmed. Yeah, that's, that's about right if you average it out. In fact, um, if you look at it on the basis of individual hospitalizations, it was a little bit less than that, closer to one in five, just because uh, some people... Uh, have suffered more than one harm due to medical care while they're hospitalized. So uh, there's a little bit of double counting in some cases. Oh, I didn't take into consideration. So, so one in five chance had harm. That sounds ridiculous. Now, I, I, I mean, ridiculously bad, horrible, but, I mean, uh, one in five hospitalizations, my goodness. Um, you separated out preventable from non-preventable harms, though. We, we did, and, and the reason for that is, well, there's twofold. First of all, many of the harms that happen in hospitals, at least according to best practices and current technology, are things that we can't uh, prevent. And an example of that would be uh, you're given a penicillin antibiotic for the first time in your life, and you have an allergic reaction to it. As far as you know, you've never had it before. You certainly never had an allergic reaction before, and yet suddenly you develop this, this harmful event. We would classify that as a harm, but we would consider that to be non-preventable according to current technologies and so forth. Okay, um, so if, if all these and, one in five hospitalizations had harms and the vast majority of them were just stuff that happens and weren't preventable, that wouldn't be so bad. Right. Yeah, the problem is the vast majority are not in that category. And in bad. our study, we said about 60% were preventable. And there was, again, the OIG report, just to give you a second source, um, they concluded that about 40% of the harms that they picked up were not uh, were, were preventable. Now... How about deaths? Did, did these harms result in deaths? 
Yeah, and in a handful of cases, they did. The numbers of those were quite small, as you can imagine. I mean, it's much, much more common to have a rash or transient drop in blood pressure than it is to have um, a death as a consequence. But it certainly does happen. Did you try um, taking and extrapolating the number of deaths you saw to see if it was consistent with the 100,000 per year in America? Yeah, so from our study, we did not. Um, but, again, that OIG study that I referred to, the Office of the Inspector General study, um, that came out just about the same time as we did, used a quite similar methodology to what we used, found a quite similar rate of harms overall. And their extrapolation was that there could be as many as 180,000 deaths each year in the U.S. due to medical care, about half of which were preventable, slightly less than half. So numbers that were at least in the same ballpark as that original estimate of 98,000 deaths due to medical error. Okay, and the handful of deaths they were in the that came from harm, they were in the preventable harm category? Some, some were and some weren't. Yeah, it was a mix of both, but certainly some of them were. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. We're having a informative, interesting, and at the same time depressing discussion of the progress in American hospitals about reducing patients' risks. We're speaking with Dr. Chris Landrigan. He's Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at the Harvard Medical School and Director of the Sleep and Patient Safety Program. He's the author of a New England Journal of Medicine article that reported that improvements uh, in hospitals are, well, so far pretty much non-existent. So the data so far sound horribly um, disappointing that we're not making a dent in this problem. What do you see happening over time? Well, I'm, I'm actually very optimistic that things are going to get better, and I say that for a number of reasons, but probably the most important is that just in the past few years, there have been a few interventions that have come into play that have been shown, in some cases, not just at a single hospital level, but in, in some cases, at least at a statewide level, to improve certain types of harms. And probably the best example that we have of that right now is the introduction of protocols to prevent um, bloodstream infections through catheters that was uh, implemented initially in a statewide study in Michigan. There were about 108 ICUs that participated in this thing. And once uh, these institutions really made best efforts to make sure that hand-washing happened consistently and that sterile drapes were used and the catheters were removed when they weren't necessary and so forth, a series of relatively simple interventions that just needed to be consistently implemented. Once that was done, the rates of these types of infections uh, dropped off tremendously. And so we know that uh, we know that when we do these types of interventions right, we can have an impact and a sustained impact it has been shown on patient safety. The, the main problem that we're having right now in this country is that while awareness of safety issues has gone way up, we still have yet to consistently implement some of these proven interventions uh, around the country in every hospital. Let me just make sure I understand um, for our listeners and for myself, when you're talking about catheters, are you talking about um, things that have been inserted into veins, things that have been inserted um, into the urinary system, urinary catheters, or just all sorts of catheters? Yeah, so th this study in particular was focused on uh, catheters inserted into veins, uh, so, so typically so-called central lines where, where a catheter is, is, is inserted, not just a peripheral IV, you know, sort of the typical IV that most people think about where you, you're getting fluids or medicines through your hand, but this is a longer type of a tube that goes, goes into the central circulation of the body when, when more serious medications or when, when more sustained access is required. Has been shown that there's lots we can do to prevent infections uh, from those types 
types of captures. But the lesson applies in other types of settings as well. We certainly know, for example, that similar types of interventions to optimize placement of urinary catheters and to get them out when you don't need them can reduce hospital-acquired urinary tract infection. Are, are we at a point yet where there's transparency about these kinds of events so that the public can look and see what hospitals have more or fewer preventable harms? No, and I think one of the real lessons of this study is that, I, is that that's something we should be doing. I think we now have the we now have the data collection tools, like the IHI Global Trigger Tool, they're capable of, of doing this. And what I think needs to happen is that this needs to be rolled out at a national level so that um, hospitals and accountable care organizations uh, under the new health care law and so forth are collecting these types of data and reporting them in a systematic way. What we have right now is that when hospitals have really serious um, adverse events, so a preventable death or wrong site surgery, those types of things, those typically are reported to state Department of Public Health, and, and those are in turn collected um, as well by the Joint Commission and various other professional regulatory bodies. But the vast majority of the adverse events that occur, the smaller things, the transient things that provide us just a huge amount of information about what systems go wrong in hospitals and what we need to do to fix them, those are not in any kind of a systematic way reported back to the federal government or any other central body. And what I would like to see happen is that using a systematic tool like the one that we used in this study, we start doing that. I imagine the one you used in the study, and you had both internal and external validation to make sure these things were accurately captured. Now, that must have been expensive, but are you suggesting do it to that degree in in hospitals uniformly? Yeah, so I I don't, I mean, much of the purpose of doing this dual review in the study and all the cross-checks of validation that you're talking about was to make sure that this tool really works well, and we found that it did. And, and, and so I think this tool is, is essentially ready for prime time. It could be rolled out at this point, and people could feel quite confident about its results in the hands of, of both hospital-based reviewers um, as well, potentially people from outside, but even hospital-based reviewers who are typically uh, the group of data collectors that is easiest for hospitals to get engaged in something like this, um, do a great job with it. If you were um, going into a hospital now... Um you know, having seen these results, are there things you would do different uh, or that you would do to try to protect your health that our listeners should know about? Yeah, so I think that, that one of the lessons, both of this study and of the patient safety movement in the U.S. generally, is that is that patients are probably the greatest untapped resource in trying to make things safer that exist out there. I think that particularly when you're sick and you're vulnerable or a loved one is sick and vulnerable, it's it's the natural thing is to, is to go into a very trusting mode, I think, where you're putting yourself in the, in the hands of the healthcare system and assuming that everything is going to go great. And, you know, most of the time that turns out to be true. I think we have a great healthcare system in the U.S. despite all the problems and the errors that we detected. Um, but the people who do the best, I think, are the people that really become actively engaged in their care and partner with their physicians to make sure that the right things happen. So if you're not sure about something, you ask questions. And, and I think... Um, the best you can possibly do is, is not to just assume that everything's going to go well, but really to act actively engage with the doctors and listen and make sure that, that you're comfortable with, with whatever plans are happening, even if you don't have um, expertise in the technical things that they're talking about. Dr. Landrigan, uh, Chris, I, I understand that you're, in addition to being an associate professor of pediatrics and medicine at Harvard, you're also director of the Sleep and Patient Safety Program. Now, those two things don't sound like they go together unless, well, in the news recently, um, 
There's a story about the Washington uh, Reagan National Airport um, uh, traffic air traffic controller who fell asleep. Right. And that doesn't right. sound good for safety. Um, does, does sleep and safety go together? Well, I, I, I certainly think so. You know, much of my work prior to the North Carolina study was looking at this very issue, which is how I came into the position I'm at now at Brigham and Women's, where we've looked at what the effects of doctors' sleep deprivation are, both on their own safety and the safety of the care that they provide to patients. And I think probably not very surprisingly to people who are outside of the medical field, um, we found that staying awake for 24 hours straight uh, very substantially increases both the risk of an occupational injury for the physicians, in other words, the risk that they're going to stick themselves with a needle or a scalpel or be involved in a motor vehicle crash when driving home from work, as well as the risk that they're going to make errors in the care of their patients. And um, one of the things that I think needs to happen to address that is we need to have a much better sense within medicine about what our own biologic limits are and to try to put the same types of work hour limits in place that do exist in the airline industry and in other safety-sensitive industries that have managed to find effective ways to address this problem. I'm glad you mentioned the airline industry because I was thinking, as you were saying this, that, boy, medicine keeps learning from the airline industry. The airline industry right. has a checklist, you know, before they take off. And now the surgeons have a checklist before they start cutting. And the pilots, sometimes my flight's delayed because the pilot hasn't gotten enough sleep, so they have to wait till he's fully rested. And the uh, same thing could, could be applied to physicians in the hospital setting. Right. I think that's absolutely right. And, and part of the reason that we keep hearkening back in the patient safety movement to aviation safety is that they really are 50 years ahead of us. I mean, in this country, aviation safety started in earnest just after World War II, whereas our first real major national report in patient safety came out in 1999. And so we have a long way to go, I think, even to catch up on basic lessons. And that's not to say that aviation has solved everything. I mean, as the recent air traffic controller incident points out, as well as um, every few years we, we hear about uh, aviation safety incidents of, of one sort or, or another, you know, things aren't, things aren't perfect there. But that said, if you look at it on a per-risk basis, we know that the number of deaths due to plane crashes and so forth are, they're, they're 1% of what the deaths due to medical errors are in this country. And so we... You know, I, I think we have many lessons that we can learn from them and just need to figure out how to translate those into our environment. Do you have any final suggestions for our listeners? Well, I, I think the, the main thing at this point, beyond this issue of trying to figure out how to more effectively monitor uh, for harms and get patients engaged and, and participating in this activity, is, is we need to figure out at a national level how we're going to implement those things that are proven effective. So, for example, this, this catheter um, bloodstream uh, prevention initiative or ventilator-associated pneumonias or surgical errors or my own um, prior interest of doctor sleep deprivation and work schedules and patient safety. We, we know now many different types of interventions that are effective, but what we have not figured out is how we roll these things out effectively, not just at a statewide level, but really at a national level to make sure that all patients are getting the benefit of the science as it comes forward. And that's really going to be a struggle going forward. And I think that uh, the public has an important voice in this, in making sure that hospitals are thinking about this stuff and um, are really engaged in national efforts to improve. Chris, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you. Good to speak with you. Well, you know, in some ways I don't like shows like these where we focus only on the downside of things. Um, yeah, sure, there's a lot of harm. Uh, but there's a lot of great things happening in hospitals, too. A lot, you know, we focused on the one in five patients about whom some sort of harm developed, preventable or otherwise. 
Uh, but then there's, you know, the great, great majority of patients who are benefiting from their hospital stays. We need to keep both of these things in mind. We don't want to, you know, throw out the great medical care we get. Um, but we do want to fix whatever problems are there. And it's an ongoing effort. And as um, Dr. Landrigan points out, even just systematic use of some simple changes may help. Um, but also, as he points out, and as so many of our other guests have, patients themselves can help by being actively engaged in their medical care. I hope you've enjoyed today's program. Uh, in upcoming shows, we'll be talking um, about the pharmacy system in our healthcare um, system, and we'll be talking about uh, the interactions uh, and interface between law and medicine. I want to thank you uh, for listening. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. The show has been brought to you in part by a grant from Leo Pharma. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.